Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I have to tell you something, people. We're having a garage sale on Saturday because we're moving at the end of the month back east, and it's so funny how me and Joanne look at different things. I basically said, like, I have a bunch of cassettes, and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to mark them for a buck, and if people don't want to pay a buck, I'll give them for two for a dollar. And she's like, well, we need to get change, like quarters. I said, no, no. We're getting ones and fives. I'm not breaking any one hundreds. I'm not giving anyone quarters. So she gets, you know, she gets worried about it. But I'm like, if people don't like it, tough shit. We're getting a good deal. So anyway, so I'll be getting rid of a bunch of cassettes, which I, I was I was going to keep, but I don't really use cassettes anymore. And I love cassettes, and I actually do have like a sort of Walkman thing. But you know what? I have my CDs and the cassettes. I don't need them back east, so that's about it. Anyway, we have a great show. Uh, this gentleman was on, I looked it up. He was on February of two years ago. So two years and about three months. And honestly, he he's always worked. I mean, you look at his IMDb. He has like 230 credits, which is just 231 to be exact, which is just insane. But he just, he never stops working. My guess is Xander Berkeley. How you doing, Xander? I'm good, Steve. How are you? I guess you're in turmoil because uh, moving is a, is a is an ordeal, no matter how you slice it. Well, she's been ba- packing a lot of stuff. Basically, my my thing was I had to get rid of a bunch of t-shirts. I'm like a t-shirt hoarder. I have tons and tons of t-shirts. So I went through them. I went through the clothes. And now it's basically you know it's going pretty good. We gave ourselves a lot of time. We're moving at the end of April. We're shipping this stuff back. She owns a condo back there. We have a place to move. So besides packing, it's not too stressful. Is your wife on you the way mine is? Because I, I tend to be, you know, I'm an artist as well. And I've uh, been around long. I've been in the house. I was in the house for 10 years before she moved in 16 years ago. And uh, so there are layers of stuff in the garage because I'm always like, Really? And then she, I think she read that Japanese book that's like, where you're, the, the main question is, does it bring you happiness? Right. <laughs> and with every object, I don't, I don't know, a little, a little happiness. Well, I there. think, I think we, just, we just accumulate. Because this is funny. I was going through my upstairs closet, and I found it must have been, I had hair, so it must have been from like 14 years ago or 13 years ago, a stack. And I mean like a stack, like 300 headshots. And I was like, holy crap. I don't even know what they're doing in the closet. So I'm finding stuff I didn't know. I've been finding these Dodgers bobbleheads I got at the game, and I've been selling them for like 25 bucks a piece. So I'm like, hey, this is pretty good stuff. So like headshots of uh, your headshots, Steve? Or- yeah, my my headshot. I had hair. I look, I look like a... Thinner George Costanza when he had hair. It's unbelievable. And yeah, and so once a headshot is dated, it, it, it becomes like an increasingly like, just become like a collector's item. Uh, sometimes I and, and I'm now on the con circuit, which I never thought I would ever be on. But you kind of have to do it on The Walking Dead. Um, everybody does it, and so it's sort of like part of the deal. Um, and I, I think it would be kind of funny. I mean, obviously, I have like these stills. Which you're, you're moving to Cherry Hill, right? That's where you're going back. Is that well, where you? That's just, where you're from. I'm from Prescott. We're moving right next door to Mar in Marlton. That's where my girlfriend uh, has a condo. It's right next to Cherry Hill. 
because I'm going to a town, I think in Cherry Hill, in a few weeks, because I grew up in New Jersey. And that one is one that I'm actually looking forward to because it's the chiller con, I think it's called. Um, because it's just chill earth. No, it's because it's a multi genre uh, and not just Walking Dead. Because one of the things that I have found out to my dismay is that uh, on The Walking Dead, um, they're really not as interested. They're, the people that go to these conventions, by and large, are less interested in acting, uh, per se, than they are in the characters. They're, there's there's almost a kind of like soap opera-like devotion to these characters and a, a, a kind of a thin line between, you know, like they, they kind of believe them. And they, they, I think they, they believe that I must be a douche waffle in general because I'm being so mean to Maggie. And like they actually come up and they ask, why are you being so mean to Maggie? I didn't write it. I'm just playing my part, dude. <laughs> Yeah, now, is, is this is this one of your first conventions, first cons, or because I mean, you, you were in twenty four, you were in Little Kita, you were in a bunch of stuff. I you, I thought you may have been at a con before, but is this one of your first ones? I went to Sarah and I went to one about eleven years ago, right before we had our first child, uh, and we were invited to very funny Shanda uh, Bernhardt's fiftieth birthday party in in Morocco. You know, and she was in New York, and, and we're all friends. Uh, Sarah grew up the, with the woman that's been uh, the life partner, uh, this fabulous other Sarah that uh, Sandra has been living with and raising her child for the last well, longer than we've been together. And they invited us to come, and they all live in New York, and all their friends, the fancy friends, were flying to Morocco. And in L.A., it just sounded amazing, but we just thought, how are we going to be able to do this? And then... Around that same time, somebody that does this stuff uh, told us about, well, you know, you could do a convention and it would fly to London and, you know, you could just go over to Morocco and you could make a stack. Yeah, oh my God, you're kidding me. Well, let's look into that. And, uh, and we actually had a ball the one time we did it because uh, we were sitting together and we were greeting fans that were... You know, some were aware that we were a couple and some weren't. Uh, we've been married for about five years at that point, I think. And, um, but most of them were aware that we were a couple and they were excited to meet, you know, George and Nina from 24. And we'd never been to one of these things before. And it was, for me, kind of a point to actually have direct contact with an audience for the first time since I was in the theater a lifetime ago. And I, I suddenly remembered how much I, I actually, when I, got over the, the kind of embarrassment of coming out from the theater, like not knowing whether or not they liked the performance, you know, and or the play. And I always had kind of like a <laughs> walking out to a crowd after the play. Uh, also a little shyness and no longer being the character and suddenly you're you. And I've always been more comfortable with just assuming a role and staying in that. And almost not wanting to break the fourth wall ever. That's, I think, one of the reasons why I changed the way I looked and the way I talked and so many things. And I almost wanted to keep the audience off the scent of me as an actor, as a as a as a person.
person because I wanted to keep them devoted to the character and the story that I was in and not distract them because I know I get distracted when I go to a movie and I'm more aware of the, I'm just constantly thinking about like, oh, what is that divorce is going? Ah, there's a big settlement. I want to see the kids now. You know, that's like, I want to be thinking about the story instead of all that. And, uh, and somehow, if your celebrity supersedes the character, I've always just, I don't know, it's a self, it's also, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to therapy right now. You're, 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 you're fading out a little bit. Oh, really? Yeah, okay, now that's good. Talk again. Let me go more direct. Let me take off speaker. Um, did, how much of that did you catch? Sorry, I caught, yeah, sorry. I caught, I caught, I caught oh, it. Yeah. No, I caught it. No, it's, it's, it's good. This, this sound, this sounds better. This sound, you sound great. You sound wonderful. I'm going to go back down the hill a little bit. I'm, I'm going to pick up my daughter, uh, after school. And so I'm now hovering, uh, in that area. <clears throat> so, and I'm moving to the shade now. I should get better reception down here. Oh yeah, you sound fine. Which is still, it's, it's good. So yeah. So you were saying you're saying about you you were breaking down the fort. You never wanted to break down the fourth wall. You changed your look because you didn't really want to deal with the. I kind of a little bit. I wanted to maintain my anonymity. I always loved uh, throughout all these years. I've been making movies. I loved you know on location being able to go to a cafe and sit and uh, I draw all the time and and I love to sit and draw people. And without them being aware of me, even being in the cafe. And I like to make notes on behavior and interactions and just, I like to be a student of others. And I remember, you know, a good friend of mine from a long, long time ago, actor Barry Corbin, uh, said, why do you want to be famous? If you're famous, everybody's looking at you. You don't want to be looking at you. You want to, you want to look at everybody. I'm sad if you're famous. Everybody changes the way they act. Nobody acts naturally in front of you. Well, you want to watch how people act naturally, don't you? I remember him saying that to somebody else. And I was like going, yeah, that's it. My muse is people acting naturally in their lives. And I'd already been friends with enough really famous people from early on working on things um, to see how altered and skewed reality becomes. And... Uh, sort of on, on, a, on a level of sort of the spiritual journey that I've always been on, wanting to kind of uh, watch fame as like a drug almost, um, an inebriant of the ego, and I never was sure my ego would, uh, wouldn't consume me, and so I just always want to hold it at bay a little bit. And, and then... Um, but it's, it's definitely always been a conflicted thing because you want great roles. You want to play great parts and tell great stories. And by and large, they need a big name for those movies. And, you know, so there's the frustration at every step of the way. Oh, yeah, I was famous. I could get those bigger parts because I would hear forever, oh, God, we would love to go with you, but we've got it. We need a, you know... There, there, there's a list of names that they can accept for this part. How does that make you You're feel? You're not on that list. How does that make you feel as an actor when, when you know that you have the chops and then the name thing? I mean, it must, as an actor, it must sometimes piss you off just for the fact that, true, it's about names, but 
when you think about if it was just about acting, I mean, does it did it ever irritate you, especially younger in your career? Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's it's there. It's a frustration, but at the same time, uh, with that goes when you cross over. There's there's no crossing back, and my mother kind of gave me two admonitions. She didn't. She was wary of the whole acting thing, and she had thought I would be a diplomat or something. She, something in my nature told her that I would be good at ambassadorial services or something like that. And that's always been an interest of mine. Uh, as a, I picked a lot of jobs because of where I got to travel. And when you when you go on location, you on uh, foreign countries, you often deal with the embassy and have entree, and then you also sitting at the cafes and drawing, oftentimes the ones that do recognize you are the cinephiles who've seen movies that you've been in many times. And and then you got entree, you have entree into the art circles and you can introduce people from one world to the other in a way that you could never do if you were actually in the diplomatic services, you know, mired in bureaucratic red tape. So I kind of was fulfilling uh, her dream a little bit uh, at the same time as my own. But when I first left at 23, left the theater in New York to go uh, being brought out by an agent um, who was moving from New York to L.A., um, she said two things to me. One, well, honey, she's from Texas originally. And uh, she said, honey, you know, about money, you know, money's only a problem if you have too much or too little of it. And because she knows that a lot of people go out there trying to become rich and famous. And in terms of fame, all I'm going to say is be careful what you wish for. Because you may just get it. And what then? What then? And she let, she leveled me with a gaze and I just had a little chill down my spine. And it is like Pandora's box and there is no return. So in answer to your question, there was always like a little like that, you know, I submit to the hands of fate and the merciless vicissitudes of it because I trust in um, my, I don't know, my own little destiny to to find me an interesting journey. And uh, maybe it won't be in, in the glaring uh, lights, but maybe that's for the better because I stay a little, I, I've often noticed that the greatest, my, you know, the greatest comedians, the greatest musicians, the greatest actors begin to repeat themselves and lose some of their inspiration as they get older because they're separated from, they're in a bubble and they don't have contact with real, the real world anymore. And I, I feel like it, it shuts down their access to the muse on some level. It's just, one, maybe a rationale uh, that's self-calming, that assures me that I'm doing the right thing. And some of it is just the luck of the draw. Um, you know, I deliberately chose when I first came, when I left the theater, uh, my first movie being Mommy Dearest. And it was a bit of a shock the way it all went down. And, and uh, the director lost his wife while he was shooting. And Faye Dunaway was... Uh, going on a mad rampage, devouring scenery left and right. It went from being a big, huge Academy Award studio movie to a cult movie. And a lot of of shit hit the fan, and a big, big scene that I'd auditioned with 
written out without my knowing it. And for five months, I waited to do that scene. And um, on the day, after hours of waiting, thinking it was my, it was my last scene in the movie that I was going to be shooting, to discover that they weren't shooting it, that they were just going to have uh, Diana, um, who basically left the business after that movie, to after one more film, she'd agreed to do Silk, but I think, and then after that, it was over for her. She's like, I'm out of here. Um, it was rough. But uh, she she was the one that was going to view the body, and they'd had a whole nervous breakdown scene where Christopher had gone in, hadn't seen his mother in a long time, hadn't said, I love you, hadn't said, fuck you, hadn't said goodbye, and kind of lost it. And then I'd auditioned with that. The only time in my career where they just handed me the script in the office, uh, the director and the cast director said, thank, thank you so much. This is yours, and we're so happy to have you on board. And so five months later, I thought I was going to do that scene, and like, oh, no, that's a script. No, that got cut months ago. Where didn't you hear? No, well, we don't know the Chris Fraction went in there. So anyway, Diamond's going to come out. You two are going to greet each other, and, they, uh, and then you're out. Okay. Um, and I remember, I mean, no acting, and, and I was traumatized, and... I had so much energy that was built up sitting in a, in, a, in a funeral home with real flowers for five hours waiting to do this scene and then rage was sort of flipping in at that. Why, how, why weren't they just shooting it and why didn't they tell me and, uh, and so I sat there and I looked like an alien uh, or an insect from another planet on acid uh, to myself when I saw the film. I, I could feel all the emotions that some of my friends thought were very authentic and very much like what Christopher would be going through, but for me it was a little much. And I, I didn't want to do another film until I learned to work with cameras and adjust uh, for the minimalism of film. And I chose to go after bad guy roles because just on a mathematical level, every episode of television needed another bad guy every episode. And I was already aware, and I'd been informed, that uh, a politically correct atmosphere had sort of moved in where they were reluctant to go with the black dudes and the Latinos for a lot of these roles. Um, this sort of predates the big gang thing. Um, and so I thought, well, they can go with the, the intense-eyed white Boy, and I started getting down from my theater chops a lot of a wide range of accents from German terrorist to uh, you know hillbilly psycho to uh, urban drug addict to you know all kinds of bad guy roles that were like disposable uh, education for me. It was just working with cameras and learning how to get comfortable with them the way I got comfortable in, in the theater. For ten years before that, uh, since I was a young teenager, and I loved just learning. And I didn't know that they'd still be showing these episodes of The Incredible Hulk, Mash, <laughs> thirty-five years later. It wasn't as disposable as I thought, but even still, no shame. It's all part of pop culture now, and uh, a, a fun sort of fun journey. And I, I don't know if I. If I missed out by not getting more famous. Well, you know, I got to ask... There's only one role I wished I'd gotten that I came close to. What was that? Um, that I really think, like, uh, I met with Bernardo Bertolucci on The Sheltering Sky for 
over an hour at uh, the Chateau Marmont right after he'd done uh, The Last Emperor. And he was the star. And he didn't need a name, he didn't think. <clears throat> but he ended up sort of going in the middle with Malkovich. And I, I love a lot of what Malkovich has done. But he didn't, in my opinion, go there the way Deborah Winger did in that and the way I would have done had I done that part. I remember we just got the, the, the novel, the Paul Bowles novel, to read uh, rather than a script and uh, went into a meeting. And I looked very much like Paul Bowles and I had read a lot of him and other existential expatriates from the 40s and I really identified with that uh, movement and uh, psyche and when I got to the part of the book where he spiked 103 degree temperature I was feeling he didn't I took my temperature and I had 103 degree temperature and I wasn't sick um, and when I went in to meet with Bertolucci, it was one of the most extraordinary meetings I've ever had in my life. You know, we did talk for an hour, watched the sun go slowly down on the walls of the beautiful chateau. And I could see the sadness in his eyes. Just we were talking about everything, about how film sees every moment of anticipation and that he and Brando have developed a, a kind of um, a rule of spontaneity and no rehearsing. And I know he's taken a lot of flack lately, and I don't really know the whole story, but... Um, there was something incredibly inspiring to me as a young actor then about that conversation and I was on hook, line, and sinker um, and would have wanted to tell his story from the inside out as Paul Bowles becoming him in, uh, in the desert in, in the Arab culture in the 1940s and, and not outside of commenting on it which is what I felt happened uh, and I felt that was a, a miss and I felt that was why the movie was a miss and didn't, didn't hit and so I think that's why that's my only regret because I think I could have better served the story and that's been my God from day one how do I that's a, every time I read a script I ask myself how can I tell the story and a lot of times if I don't feel like I can tell it better than somebody else I kind of get more inspired by calling the friend who I think would be better in the part. Um, and for the most part, I just really had a, a fucking ball playing this wide range of characters. And the only other sort of general regret is that I, by playing those bad guys early on, manipulating my energy in a certain way, and because I've heard that in LA they don't believe it if it doesn't walk through the door, that you, they gotta, they've got to think that you're it. That same literalism that I was talking about on the convention, uh, talking in relation to Walking Dead, was kind of a general sort of a pervasive notion coming from New York about LA that uh, they lack imagination and if you they just they want they wait for it to walk through the door. So I, I walked through the door as disturbed individuals on occasion, and it was uh, never a way that made anybody feel unsafe. But that, like, oh, he's he's weird, man. And uh, I can remember my mother watching things and going, "Oh, honey, I see you as such a sweet boy, but they just have you pegged for a weirdo out there." <laughs> and I said, "Well, mom, that's for a reason. I'm kind of very much a participant." 
flippant and that. And I, I thought I would be able to shake it. And in a way, I, I was really, I had a lot of comedy chops in the theater, and I was sort of like thinking that this was my way to be taken seriously and to avoid being a clown and just being on a sitcom. I never heard from again. Right before Robin broke from Mork and Mindy and Tom broke from Bosom Buddies that I came out to L.A. And, you know, I, I, I did start working and never stopped, essentially. But I did get pigeonholed. And with The Walking Dead, I am really struggling a bit because I love playing this character. I love everybody on the show. And I love all the writers and the showrunner, Scott Gimple. But I did have, when they approached me, I did say, Scott, I've got two little girls, seven and ten. Oh, I've waited a long time to have them. When I'm gone, I want them to look on TV and not just say, Daddy, he really was just a big shit heel. Because <laughs> 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 I just keep playing them. No, they will never think that, but they will wonder, like my mother, why do they have me picked for a weirdo out here? And, I, I want to play other parts besides douche waffles and shit heels. How did The Walking Dead come about? And then, you know, it has such a huge audience. And I always say it's the, I always see on Facebook, you know, the spoilers. And everyone spoils The Walking Dead. Everyone gets pissed off at each other. And I know a guy who used to spoil The Walking Dead by making shit up. Didn't even happen. And people would be pissed at them and they watched it and they go, oh, didn't happen. But how did The Walking Dead come about? And how is it when you get put on a show like that? Because you were on 24, which was huge. So it had the following. But what was it like? I mean, how is the whole, how did the whole role come about? And you were on part of one season and you came back as a regular. Is that what happened? No, it was, um, Kirkman had this character of Gregory in the uh, graphic novel, in the comic book. Not a graphic novel, I was thinking of that, but it's a comic book, The Walking Dead, that has a huge cult following prior to the show and that the show is predicated on. And Gregory, uh, like many characters I have played, is the boss, has, I guess I have a, a certain voice and physical stature that has gotten me cast to get it again as authoritarian, the head of the CIA, the head of the other, the head of the CTU, the head of, you know, Secret Service and uh, all sorts of sort of police chief and authoritarian roles in general. And head, uh, at the same time, I was also the leader of a community in the post-apocalyptic future, which I also play in Allegiant, and I also play in 12 Monkeys. So as you think, that was a weird pattern cult leader in uh, the apocalyptic future. Is this my destiny? Um, <laughs> um, that um, the character sort of, I guess, in my wheelhouse, I had, this is one of the things that I've, I've had as a strength that has gotten me and kept me working, a willingness to sacrifice my vanity. Um Oddly, I think a lot of actors have a kind of keen instinct, whether it's vanity-driven, ego-driven, or a really keen sort of ambition, survival instinct, to keep something that separates them if they have the potential to play other parts, to not let themselves be seen that way. 
And uh, I went for it. I went for it early on. And I went for it as a little bit of a baby hippie when I was in you know, experimental theater and I was making the, the transition into film. I, I, I remember seeing Taxi Driver when I was still in, in New York and thinking, as blown away as I was by what De Niro was doing, I felt a little shudder down my spine that people were going to want to copycat that. And that unevolved human beings would project some sort of coolness and hipness on his violence. And so I was sort of just made a, a weird little pact with myself to, if I'm being a bad guy, I'm going to make him seem vile and not sexy and not cool. Distance, make it in some way clear on a level that is makes it repellent. Repellent behavior should be repellent. And I took that, you know, ethos to a level where, you know, a lot of actors maybe wouldn't think a natural instinct to be charismatic or to be cool or to be sexy. It's in the ego, it's in the natural sort of uh, drive to become a movie star or whatever always slips in and doesn't want to be seen weak or seen, you know, just in a, an unattractive light. And I did that with a lot of roles along the way. And that was why I noticed that it had pigeonholed me a little bit. And I remember particularly one dear friend directing a movie saying, uh, oh, God, you know, just, and I said, well, what about that part, you know? What about the dad? And she goes, oh, no, we really have to like him. And I said, God, you like, like me for 30 years, what are you talking about? And she said, no, 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 of course, everybody knows you, love you, but it's uh, that the audience all have such associations of you. That's because I was playing those parts that you were supposed to have those associations with. If I were playing a part where you're not, you wouldn't feel that. And, she was, and the director was just nervous about that. And I think a lot of people have been, understandably, I guess. And it's prevented me from getting parts that show my full range. Um, and so I, I still feel that, like, I look forward to that. I've gotten to play a lot of really interesting characters that you can't really tell where they're coming from. But Gregory was, uh, they they wanted me, and I said, ooh, they gave me the description, I went, ooh, my God, that guy sounds like he's such a creepy. <laughs> he's, uh, he hits on women that don't respond, and he's uh, the narcissistic, he's totally self-involved, can't remember people's names, that's kind of funny, I kind of like that, uh, but he's a coward, and I just thought, like, oh my God, especially the show, they'll, they'll, they'll forgive you anything, but don't be a coward. And, uh, and, and I just sort of was talking through, and basically I kind of made a deal, like, well, can I at least have, be a guy that, that, you know, is a charlatan, has a kind of, it's so funny, because somebody, uh, the other day, that they, have, they got a little feeling of the Wizard of Oz, and I guess because um, I didn't incorporate, I wanted to have a little bit of the old West, timeless uh, huckster charlatan in, in, in my bones, 
for playing the character. And I wanted to fulfill, there was something because I've done a lot of animation and I wanted to just look at the, the drawing and channel him. But I wanted to add, and I had a conversation with Scott, basically what does the show not have that you want it to have? So like maybe in there we have a, a find for this character, something I can bring and that'll bring a, like op open the window and let a cool breeze come in in a new direction that you might want to take things in. And uh, I, I think the guy who approaches the apocalypse from the point of view of everything's going to hell in a handbasket, so if I want a cocktail, I want to have a pretty lady, if I want to uh, take care of, save my hide, sue me, okay? Sue me. <laughs> and that was the, the sort of pitch that I had. And the guy that finds himself amusing or is just a little bit detached and and taking it with a laugh because I think more people approach dire circumstances with a kind of uh, detached uh, amusement than we realize. Just as I think more people uh, are out to save their own skin at the end of the day than we realize or want to acknowledge it. TV is littered with heroes and uh, and, even, and 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 villains that are brave. Everybody's brave. Almost nobody's a coward. And I don't, uh, and a coward is the word we use for it, but it's just called survival. And if you don't have, you know, a, a wife and children, as this character doesn't, that you feel the need to protect first and foremost, you're going to want to protect yourself. So I think there's a lot of it that's sort of like just. I think people are kind of repulsed because they're repulsed to the part of themselves that might be like that. It's my theory. Now, are you getting recognized because of that character more? I mean, you've, you've, you're very recognizable. You've been in so much stuff, but are people recognizing you now because that is, that has like that certain following? You said some of the people actually think that's you, but are you getting recognized more? And what's that like? Well, my personal style is very different than Gregory's. And when I'm playing Gregory, I have a beard. And it's a two-tone beard that goes with the comic book. We tried to accurately kind of get his mustache is very dark, and the rest of his beard is white. He's got this very kind of two-tone, um, black and white kind of dark and white um, coloring in his hair. And uh, we just do. He has an entirely different repertoire of, of physical gestures than I have. So I look like, when I'm playing the part, I look a lot like the comic book character, but I don't look as much like myself, the way he dresses. And so when I'm out, you know, around town as my hipster self, an artist, artist self, jokingly referring to myself as a hipster, uh, an old artist uh, <laughs> dude, um, I don't really look like the character that much. And I, I fly into the radar. I've, I've kind of gotten that down to an art, but it, I, I think people also do. Are they are recognizing me more? Now, what do you th what do you think this uh, chiller will be like when you're going? I mean, you're gonna you're gonna sell. You know, I guess you, you set up pictures, and are you gonna have pictures besides The Walking Dead? You can have different other pictures from your career. Sure, when I especially like the one in New Jersey, Hill. Do you know anything about it? I've heard of the chiller. chiller one. I've heard of it, and if it's in Cherry Hill, I'm guessing it's at the Crown Plaza. I think that used to be where there was years ago a comedy club I used to play at. And actually, when I went back a few times uh, five years ago, I performed there too. I think there was something coming like 
a few years ago, a few weeks after I left, and you're so close to Philadelphia that it's it's very accessible. Yeah, um, I know there is one. Maybe it was last year. Maybe it was a Walker Stalker or something last year that I didn't go to that was in Cherry Hill. I know something was. But um, maybe this one did Passaic or something. Um, but uh, I'm going to still try and round up my hometown buddies. You know, I, I don't know exactly. We're pretty close to the same age. But, man, one of the things I noticed this time has gone by, my crowd from high school, we just... We, we kind of we we still uh, hang uh, and stay in touch and feel like really kind of like the cat that ate the canary in a way in terms of music and in terms of culture in terms of what we got to grow up with um, not being old enough to be swept up in all the campus uh, riots and everything and all that you know upheaval of the revolution but just being the sort of early 70s hippies, but still being in grade school while the British invasion of Motown happened. And uh, and then being, you know, little uh, country, so growing up in the countryside, but like country hippie, long hairs, uh, learning about, you know, the environment and the women's movement and, and uh, progressive education and the anti-war movement. Uh, was full swing at that point, civil rights movement. I started, I got very involved with that with my parents when I was really young. And there was just so many positive things that you felt like you were a part of changing the world in a really good way. And especially in this day and age with uh, a lot of people just increasingly consumed with money and uh, a willingness to harm the environment and harm women and harm minorities. Um, it's been a little bit hard to watch the last 50 years of my life backslide all the progress and the effort we were making to try and make the planet better and people kinder towards one another to see it make this sudden turn towards meanness and uh, divisiveness and and uh, now you know yesterday this wanton act of uh, merciless polluting uh, and and you know, destroying the planet for the sake of money and greed, and, and it's all under the guise that they're going to help bring back the, the, the coal industry or this industry of that, but it's not. It's just like the fat cats fucking richer, and they can give a shit about the, uh, the, the, the... It's all a con job, in my opinion. You know, that's why they don't care about their health care. That's why they don't care about anything, but they don't care about the planet. Their children and their children's children are going to live on. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm disheartened in this in this day and age, but uh, and I'm a little nostalgic for the however naive, idealistic it may have been, for the culture of caring and not caring about uh, just everybody being so consumed with themselves and with money um, and technology. <laughs> Uh, but really connecting and, and connecting to one another and uh, the brotherhood of man. Is that is that uh, the artist uh, in you? Is that because is that, I know I know also when you're not in LA, you spend time in Maine. Is that why you go up there because you can still keep in touch yeah. with nature and you can paint nature, yeah. and sculpt? Is that and why you a, chose that? Yeah, absolutely. And there's a there's a, a, an incredible bluegrass festival up there in that area. That all kinds of music are there. And it's it, I see young people involved with it. It just gives me hope. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that are involved with, uh, you know, 
organic farming and, and uh, really they love their nation up there and, and uh, I'm just a country boy at heart and uh, I always wanted to get back to the garden and, and stay there on a certain level and I think that's another reason why I never wanted to get too full myself and be removed from regular normal people because uh, don't be, you know, be able to have a normal life and have my children have a normal life and, and uh, not Now, I had talked to you last week, uh, or met, we had messaged back and forth. You had said you had done a best a bunch of guest spots recently, or co- or starring roles. Let's see what was that? When was that? So I know you were, years ago. No, no, just no. The other day, you, you said you were doing a bunch. You've been just worked a bunch a bunch recently, right? And a few different oh, shows. Oh yeah, well, I, I just did a movie uh, with a. Old friend of mine, Brad Furman, and who I did his very first short film, and, and this one was no short film. It had Johnny Depp and Forrest Whitaker and Oh God, all these. I had a real fun part in that. It's called Labyrinth, and L A will be, I think, capitalized at the beginning of the word Labyrinth, dealing with Tupac and Biggie and, and what went down. And the two characters, two main characters, uh, Johnny plays the detective who made it his life's mission to get to the bottom of what the hell happened there. And, uh, and Forrest plays the uh, journalist who similarly made it his mission to get to the bottom of the story. And their interaction and the different forces that uh, got in the way. And um, it's just, I think it's a real good movie. What do you play? And I'm not... What's that? I play the head of the, uh, the news network that uh, is that Forrest worked for. And it's it's in the beginning and the end uh, that it, uh, I don't want to give away any secrets. It's a great part. It's a real fun interaction. I've known Forrest forever and I love him. It's great to work with him again. Peter Green came out of the woodworks for this one, played a, a, a corrupt cop and uh, we had him in the scene. And it was, yeah, it's it's going to be good. Now, were you were you a fan? Were you a fan of either of their music, Tupac or Biggie? Were you ever a fan of any rap? Uh, I was more de la soul, hip hop, house music, okay. um, and hip hop than, than I was rap. I, I always felt a little too white country to be that urban. I it felt like a facade, and the, the people I knew, I was like, really, I don't know. Um. <laughs> But, you know, it's just culturally for me. I, I, I'm sure if I listened, every, the people I know that love, you know, especially Tupac, if I sat down, I'm sure now I would be blown away by him. But just at the time, I was, I didn't really, you know, my generation is the punk generation. Right. Now, you, were, you were in City I Nancy. Was, yeah. And, but that was, that was my age. I mean, Joe Strummer's a few years older, and I'm so grateful I got to be really good friends with him, doing three movies with him, and uh, miss him forever. He's an incredible guy. And um, but and Joe is the exception in punk. That the class to me had mindfulness and political uh, integrity uh, that went beyond just you know we're going to just knock things over. And, Make a shitstorm in rebellion of what? Um, I didn't. I did not feel the the nihilistic punk ethos. I was still 
very idealistic into the 70s, and I wanted to see change continue to happen and optimism. I'm sort of a, the risk of being Pollyanna, I'm still a, a, a big optimist and an idealist and, and uh, believe in positive change. And so I didn't really identify with punk, even though that was uh, my time. Uh, when I was in New York, I, I sort of declared punk and disco and the, the self-involvement of disco and the uh, nihilism of punk as a kind of like death knell. And, and, and so when, right at the end of the 70s, with Joe Strummer and Elvis Costello and the Talking Heads and, and Blondie, and these things came out, like, I, I got very connected to that. Uh, I guess that was New Wave, Fang, but I, I, that's just a name that was put on it. David Byrne and Brian Eno, everything that Brian Eno and David Bowie were doing uh, just seemed so inspired, and I I connected with that, and uh, and that uh, kind of kept me going. Um, and uh, so a lot of uh, rap, kind of like punk, felt nihilistic to me, and I didn't connect with it. How did you meet Strummer? And how, I mean, what movies did you work with him on? Um, he did music on Sid and Nancy, and he liked what I was doing in the movie, and and so when. When uh, when we went to Spain, the, the last shots of, of um, Sid and Nancy, the director Alex Cox, <clears throat> the anarchist filmmaker, madman genius, um, leaned down. I was like on the ground, and, and he said, "Get your shots. We're going to Nicaragua." And I went, "Isn't there a war going on there?" Exactly. And I was okay. Uh, I'm, in for a pound and for in for a penny and for a pound, I guess. And uh, I was getting offered by the time that um, the movie came out because people were responding. And but I like well, and and Alex said, as you can suspect, suddenly showed up in in California again. Met him out in Santa Monica. As you might have anticipated, uh, having a little bit of trouble getting our visas in order. Uh, there is a war cited in. In, in action at the moment. However, um, initial pictures who produced Sid Nancy's generously giving me a million dollars to shoot a spaghetti western on the old Sergio Leone set in Almeria, Spain. So I've written the spaghetti western in three days. We'll shoot it in four weeks. Are you game? You'll play. Uh, and, and many of the, the musicians who were doing the music for Sid Nancy will be looking to you for acting advice. And he listed Joe Strummer and Elvis Costello and the Pogues. And they were all my favorites at the time. I oh my God, yeah, sure. I'll go to Spain and hang out with those guys and do a Western. Give them any acting tips they want. And so we, we met and hung out there and, and uh, we all had a great time of pure madness. The fiesta was going on right outside the hotel in Almeria. The Pogues wrote a great song about that. Uh, I think it's called Fiesta or Almeria or uh, whatever, but it's just captured the essence of pure madness. Uh, and uh, sometimes you couldn't sleep because it was so loud right outside. All of a sudden, Spain had descended on it. Uh, they were right outside the hotel. So sometimes camp out by the by the set, which was amazing, where they shot all those great Leone movies. And, uh, and then we went on to Nicaragua from there, and Joe played a part in that as well. Joe's great natural life, kind of had a Bogart-like quality in, in Straight to Hell, and then he grew out a beard and he played this kind of ragtag, uh, one of 
Ed Harris starred in, in Walker. This is the movie that was shot in Nicaragua, set in the 1850s, about the band that became president of Nicaragua uh, at the time, overthrown Spanish imperialist rule, and then became a mad despot and was executed and was written out of the American history books because he was a failure. Um, and I, I made a very good choice, I think, when I went down, went down without a lot of opinions so I could learn a lot. Uh, and I spoke Spanish and I could talk to a lot of people and the, the war was going on, the Contra War, and it was, uh, you know, very informative not to just get swept up in the whole Naval Revolution movement that some were dizzy to buy because uh, that was a very, uh, I noticed they shut down the press right away. They did all those classic things that happened in a communist country. And that was when I developed a great um, sort of enmity towards communism because I chose some of the countries to really see what that was about. And like uh, Winston Churchill said, if you were never a communist before the age of 30, you have no heart. And if you're still a communist after the age of 30, you have no brain. And I was 30, turning 31 around that time, and so I, it started to become clear to me what a mess that all was. And um, incredible experience, though. And then I remember Alex at one point saying to me, and when Uncle Sam parachutes onto the roof of this hotel and the maids start handing out AK-47, what will you do? <laughs> I said, I'm going to hide under the bed and pray to God that the whole thing blows over and nobody gets hurt. Not me. I'm going to grab that AK-47 and I'm going to shoot up the sap in the ass. And in my opinion, even though that film ended up on the Criterion Collection and has a great quality, it missed the mark because he got distracted by the revolution and uh, all the anachronisms that were meant to draw a parallel between then and now littered the movie in a way that they didn't in Rudy Wurlitz's original script, which was just so profound and so perfect, and that it got chaotic and and uh, less subtle than it should have been. And um, it was close to being a masterpiece. It could have been. Uh, it was an incredible experience, and I'll be forever grateful for it. But um, uh, it was a very, I was offered a movie right after that, uh, 10 days back in L.A., and then went to Chile when Pinochet was in power for three months. So three months in Nicaragua, 10 days in L.A., three months in Chile. And Pinochet's right-wing extremist regime. So I've been a student of uh, politics, and it's been a very interesting journey indeed. You've had an interesting journey. So now what else have you been shooting lately? Besides the movie, what else have you, have you, you shot? I know... Well. I, I won't go, I, I, I don't know if, if the announcement is, is, uh, is, has been made yet uh, to the press so that all the papers are, are uh, now completed. Um, I, they like to make some grand formal announcement, but I can describe the character I'm going to be playing, uh, the head of the uh, uh, Ukrainian mob, uh, a very dark, dark character in a very big movie that I'm very excited about because I'm going to do what if what I've always done when it comes to playing really dark characters and that changed the way I look in a way that hopefully the audience won't see me, they'll just see a very dangerous man with a very strong Ukrainian accent. How do you choose and, how uh, you'll look? How do, like you say, you, you'll, do you talk to them or do you say, here's how I look, here's what I want to do and how do you psychologically and mentally prepare that? 
I make a part of my pitch when I go in. I did that, you know, with Sid and Nancy, I did the full, I went the full nine yards. And uh, that was one of the first times I really committed to, you know, back in 1985, I'm going to go for it. And I had my German makeup kit and broke every capillary to play the drug dealer. And, uh, you know, yellowed some tea bat and um, put egg whites in my hair to make it look like I hadn't washed in a while and it's trying to trying to be spiky and punk with this a little of this gray powder uh, sort of make a patina of very subtle filth and uh, the car coat that was ripped and the hat that I had trying to be a hipster but just missing and, and uh, that he knocks off his head at a certain point sort of mapping out certain things for myself and uh, I got a pack of cigarettes, lit one, and had the cigarette smoke go into my eyes right before I went in the room. And so I looked like a, a I'll never forget showing up after getting the part, um, being cast out. I was in London, I showed up on set as myself in New York, and he was introduced. He goes, you're so clean. I thought we had miraculously found a junk that could act naturally in front of the camera. Oh, well, we took some of your ad-lib lines and brought them into the script so I couldn't have clear conscience, not cast, yes, but we walked away so disappointed. And uh, <laughs> so I went back and stayed in character. I put my makeup back on and stayed there. But with this one, I, I had a, a couple of photographs in my phone of actual mobsters that I wanted to... You, I'm friends with a lot of people that have won Academy Awards and makeup artists that I'm your friends with because I'm as into it as they are and, and we play together and uh, so I was uh, just thinking what I might do to get this look or that look and I based the character on my Ukrainian um, German teacher uh, Dmitry Porubchek who took it out on me at the time because I had long hair and uh, went back to the the communist thing the Russians had taken over the Ukraine back then so the Union had, and he was very angry about it. So anything that looked lefty to him in the in the classroom, he sort of made a target for his animosity, and he had a thuggish quality. So I, I told that story, and and then I just used that accent, and and, uh, and then when I went in to meet the head of the studio, we chatted about it, and I had a pitch about uh, maybe we go to uh, more of a Ukrainian nose, and make it broken, and maybe a little. I saw a guy at the uh, airport when I was in Chicago who uh, was a security guy for me and he had this incredible scar on the side of his face and I asked him where he got it and he said a dog a Doberman that bit him when he was three years old attacked him and uh, he was sort of proud of it and so I, I asked if I could take a picture I did a selfie with him he wanted one and then uh, I took a couple of close-ups of it and I, it's exactly the scar that uh, the head of the studio had said, well, maybe you can go with the scar. You know, there was a pockmarked mobster, and, and he said, uh, I don't want to go with pockmark. I don't like the idea of people with bad skin being made to feel like they're the bad guy. And I, I love that. And so, like, okay, absolutely. And this guy looked so dangerous, but right, you are. We won't do that. We'll do something else. And he goes, well, what about a scar? And I, I thought of all the cliche scar. And I saw this gnarly thing, and it was just so perfect. And so cool <laughs> at the same time. And this kid was so cool about it. 
So I thought it was an homage to him. Cool. I'll do that. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. Now, you, now we'll hear an announcement about this movie coming up soon, right? Very soon. Okay, you can't say anything. That's understandable. And then the, and then the cat would be out of the bag. Are you excited about the role? Yeah, I'm very excited, as I am about another movie that my wife and I did that is just uh, getting released onto the festival circuit in the next few weeks. It's uh, got its final little uh, post-production sound tweakings going on called The Maestro, in which I got to play this beautiful character from the 1940s, uh, Mario Castelnuevo Tesco. Uh, Tedesco it's a hard name to say I, when I was playing I could say uh, Mario Castelnuevo Tedesco and he was a, a Jewish exile from Italy under Mussolini and he was a composer and uh, Stravinsky and others got him out and got him to Hollywood and he was a ghost composer in various movies from the Marx Brothers to all kinds of things but um, his great gift, as it turns out, was as a teacher. And he taught um, Henry Mancini, John Williams, Andre Previn, Jerry Goldsmith, just like he influenced uh, 20th century film scoring cool. on a, an incredible level. And his gift was to bring out the voice of the artist and not try and impose his sound or his ideas onto them and I, I just thought there's such a beautiful metaphor for what a great teacher is is someone that can see someone and help them bring themselves out and that's called the and, maestro uh, the maestro and my wife plays my wife in the movie and she only speaks italian in it which she's always wanted to do because she spent a year in uh, her senior year in college in italy and speaks italian beautifully um so that was super fun. And, well, uh, that's awesome, man. Adam Cushman directed it. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited about that. Well, you know what, man? That's the time. But small movies, these super small movies. Time flies when I talk to you. It's, you have so many good stories, and you've been, you've had. I always, I always, whenever I look at IMDb, and when it's over 200, I go, "Holy crap!" You know, you go, "Wow!" But uh, I want to thank you for coming on, man. I'm glad we got to do this. I'm glad it was it's been two years. And uh, now when you do, if, if you do a convention in New Jersey next year, I'm going to have to come out to see you. You better. Because and, uh, I, and, and maybe you'll be playing comedy in a local club and we'll go out that night and I'll bring everybody from the con out and you'll have a bunch of weird, freaky <laughs> cult stars in the audience. Okay. And now you're... you're, you're um, Twitter is at Xander Berkeley, people. That's X-A-N-D-E-R-B-E-R-K-E-L-E-Y. And I know you tweet, so follow him on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter, people. It's at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Go to my yeah. website, coopertalk.net. I have 600 episodes up. Uh, you can also email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. I will answer your questions. Uh, and my other website, stopthesalt.com. It's my low-sodium cookbook. When I have my health problems, I wrote a book. It's 120 easy recipes. No pictures to intimidate you. The recipes are easy. No big long list of ingredients. You can get it at Amazon.com, but if you go to StopTheSalt.com, I make more money and I'll sign it for you. So people, do yourself a favor. IMDb Xander, 
Berkeley and go watch his old movies. Go rent Sid and Nancy because he's great in that. So I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week.